0: Thank you, John. And happy Father's Day to all you fathers and grandfathers that are out there. And if blessed, great-grandfathers. All right. I invite you all to open up your Bibles to First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Verse 2. When they see your respect and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, but the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be external, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are the heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time together in worship, the freedom that we have here today. And Lord, as we get into your word, into your truth, Lord, not the world's truth, that you speak to us. Lord, speak to your congregation and feed your sheep. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Peter in this passage of Scripture is simply taking. What he underscored in chapter 2, the Christian life and the servitude, the, the, the life of subjection and servitude as it pertains, pertains to the whole role in our society as a whole. And he's now bringing that application to a very intimate setting, which is the husband and wife. In chapter 2, specifically in verse 9, We read here that Christ, modeling the servant's role, um, I'm sorry, in chapter 2, specifically in verse 9, a disciple of Christ is a royal priesthood. All right, this is um, uh, chapter 2 of of Peter, um, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people set apart, sanctified for a vocation. And I want us. To understand that word vocation because it's really important. We have a job, a task here that could only be accomplished under a life of servitude. And this might be, to the world, very paradoxical, okay? Because usually the world will bring about a self-sufficiency, a pride. This is the opposite nature in the Christian life. Before we get into this, I think it's important that Peter is now bringing now this idea of servitude to the home life. And it's important as we, as disciples of Christ, think about our first ministry. We want to be ministers and we want to serve our church. But the first and foremost ministry, especially to husbands and wives is our home. The home life is extremely important. And this is the stepping stone by which your ministry really, really, really needs to um, take off and initiate because we know as deacons and elders, you cannot be a deacon and you cannot be an elder unless what? The home life is secure. So I believe this is practical in the idea that we have to keep this in mind, that the home life, the intimacy between The husband and wife and the servitude that we're called to, all right, has a great application to how now we serve our church and our society. In verse 1, we read, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. To be subject to submit to one's control. This is the practical way for the, for the wife to apply what Jesus taught, and this is what I was trying to mention before, Jesus taught his disciples in the upper room. Before he left, where did Jesus teach his disciples? He taught them to serve. He took the basin and the towel, and he wiped every disciple's feet and he's telling them to do likewise for a servant is not greater than his master I also want to bring attention to who he served he served all 12 which if you keep in mind one of them very shortly after was going to betray him and if you think about our Lord and his heart and why why he served he was bringing about a lesson not only to serve those who deserve but to to serve those who don't deserve and so I think this is really it's, it's, it's a strong application here with Peter because what was going on during this time, Christianity was spreading And it wasn't uncommon during this time for for a woman who just gave their life to Christ to have an unbelieving husband. And this is hard. Servitude is hard. It it goes against the flesh. And it's even harder when there is an unequally yoked bond, Where the wife is now told to serve the husband despite him not serving Christ. To be subject. The same Greek word that described Jesus, uh, described Jesus in Luke. So, in Luke 2, reread Jesus was subjected to his parents. After the whole debacle about them not finding him for, I believe, three days, where did they find him? In the temple. Listening to the teachers and scribes. And Jesus telling them, after they asked, where where were you? And Jesus says, I I need to be of my father's business. But we know that after that, he was an obedient servant. So, after finding his, uh, finding him after his disappearance at the age of twelve when he was found in, in conversation in the temple and the teachers and the law, we use this he, this word being in subject being in submission, Christ. Christ also followed suit. and I, and I want to bring this um, um, this idea of why why servitude at the end because this, this, this brings about a bigger bigger application why. Being a servant is so important that it unlocks something of the spirit that when we're told to do the work of the ministry, we need to do this as a servant. We need to do this being emptied. And so Christ is making this an example. And it's so interesting. At the age of 12 to the age of 30, we do not necessarily hear much about Christ's life during that time. Some speculate that you travel. Some don't know. But it's interesting that one, one author mentions that during this time, especially in your 20s and 30s, what are you doing? You're pursuing. You're pursuing life. You're finding your identity. But we, if we can infer in the Scripture that the Scriptures are silent, we can fill in that gap and say that Christ was in submission to the Father for the time he wasn't trying to find himself per se. He wasn't trying to trying to find his identity. He knew his identity. He was in total submission and waiting upon the Father until the Father said, okay, your ministry has started at the age of 30. So this was a long, a long, probably arduous time for Christ knowing who he was, being in submission to the Father, being quiet. And so... This resonates here with the wife's calling. And what I'm saying now, and it's interesting, because Peter goes about in these seven verses talking about the wife, and he dedicates one verse to the husband. There's a lot of application here for the husband as well. And for those who are not married. Since Peter is right, so the condition of the wife's servitude should not be based on whether a husband deserves her service or not, but that she is to simply take the role of a servant because that is what Christ is commanding her to do. In Colossians 3, 23 to 24, we read that whatever you do, what are we supposed to do? Do it heartily unto the Lord. This goes about in the workplace and also at this time, I'm sure. With the wives being submissive to their husbands who weren't necessarily showing them the same affection and love. The motivation was to do it, not not necessarily to the to, to the husband who wasn't showing them love, but to Christ. And this was the mindset, this was the this was the mindset for their submission. And to keep in mind that they're doing this unto the Lord. Verse 2, we read here. When they see your respect and pure conduct. This verse here, we see that it parallels. Like I said, we're bringing back this application in chapter 2. All right? The verse 12 of chapter 2 that we read here, let me just read it real quickly. It says here in chapter 2, Peter. For the Christian in society here, that a society is going against them. This is what they're told to do here, Peter says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, like the wife... With the husband that's unequally yoked. The Christian is experiencing the same backlash in society. But what is, what's the application here? What, what, is, what is Peter trying to say here? That the wife is not necessarily the, with the unbelieving husband going to win over the unbelieving husband with her words. She's not going to do it nagging him saying you got to believe in Jesus. Or are you going to hell? But she's winning him over. This prescription that we're seeing here with Peter, she's winning him over by her pure conduct, her quiet spirit. Just like in society as Christians, we want to fight, we want to stand up against the wrong, we want to debate most of the time and win the argument you know, when I was younger as a Christian I loved apologetics and I think yeah, apologetic, apologetics appeals to many people it definitely appeals to those who just love to win the argument and don't get me wrong it, it's, it's, a, it's a great task I believe apologetics um, we have to know the faith that we believe and why we believe it and it's important to know that because um, the evidence is on our side faith wins in the end. But if I were to look back in every single conversation that I, that I had with a non-believer, bringing about um, apologetic answers, scientific, as scientific as I can get it, do you know have many converts I have won in the end? Zero. Why? The conversion here, true conversion, is something that the Lord does through a servant, through one that's emptied. The power of Christ is what wins the soul. And so in this, this part of scripture here as we talk about servants and and why it's so important. What service and servitude does, it just unlocks the power of Christ in you. And that's what the wife is to do. Not to win the argument, not to find the best way to get their unbelieving husbands to believe. And we can apply this too to those Husbands here that have unbelieving spouses, unbelieving wives, that try—it's it, a tearing thing, you know—and we pray for those that are in that situation because it's—it's it's hard. It's hard to begin with following the suit of Christ and you know the husband leading the family and and, and the wife following suit for the husband. It's hard for a wife to submit to a husband anyway in her flesh. Despite her following Christ, despite if the husband follows Christ or not. But in this regard, here, the only way, the only power, the only prescription that we see here, and it's interesting, it's a prescription, just like the prescription that we hear about Jesus when he says to his disciples, I couldn't cast out the demons. Um, the only way you're going to cast this out is with prayer and fasting. Peter's given a little prescription here with the, the spouse who has an unbelieving partner. You're not going to win them over by your words. You're going to win them over by your conduct and your service to Christ, your submission, your quiet spirit. Verse 3. Oh, mind a minute. I have a story here. Very interestingly. <sighs> Talking about a quiet spirit and, and just continuing on loving your spouse. Uh, there's a story that a, uh, a spouse goes to an attorney's office and says this. I want, to, I want to serve my husband with the divorce papers. And I just don't want to divorce him. I want this divorce to hurt. And so the attorney thinks about this. He's like, Do you know how to get to your husband? Don't be malicious to him. For the next month or two, lavish him with as much love as you can give him. Do everything you can, be that, be that wife that he, he dreams of. And after that, after that time is ended, then you just slam him with these papers and see how he reacts. His heart's going to sink. So the woman does that. A month, two months, three months go by, and the attorney calls up and saying, Okay, well, what about that divorce? And the wife goes, Divorce? We're already at our second honeymoon. The converting hearts. This is the converting heart. It's by action. All right? It's by conduct. And this is, what, this is what the Lord's trying to get at here. All right? Verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or clothing you wear. But let your adorning, verse 4, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, I believe this in this part here. This is kind of the nugget. This is the, the heartbeat because this hits on a nerve. We know in our society what, what is very cherished. It's, it's beauty. And, of course, uh, the woman and her way in seeing beauty is its, it's, a, it's a high, on a high regard. They're, the woman wants to be beautiful. And if we look deep down inside, that beauty, that wanting to be beautiful, stems truly, if we were to be honest, it comes from the idea of just wanting to be loved. And we know that. To be loved and to be cherished. Because they see that if you're beautiful externally... That love follows through. That they'll be able to find their prince charming. And girls at a very young age, they're, they're brought with this mindset the movies, the books, the princess getting the prince, being beautiful. I think before we go into this, it's important that we understand what Peter's saying and not saying What he is not saying in this case here is that the woman has liberty to let herself go, all right? Or that wearing outer apparel can be seen as evil. So we we don't want to we don't want to we don't want to just um, make this a black and white issue. This is a very touchy subject here, and I want to tread lightly as a man, especially um, that we have women here. I'm The outer apparel, in this case here, shouldn't eclipse what is truly important. So Peter, I truly believe, is not saying, don't don't wear makeup. But before we go in more deeply to that, let's look at the word in this case here. And we have outer apparel, the word cosmos in the Greek. It's a very versatile word, and I didn't know that until I started studying it. And certain passages in Scripture, describes for worldly riches, cosmos, the stars in the heavens, as we know, and a form of government and order. And here, it's describing a woman's outer apparel. This is where we get, Ali, you might know this, cos um, cosmetology or cosmology. I think it's help me out here, honey. Cosmetology. I just don't want to confuse those two words. Um, cosmetology. So yes, the outer- the outer apparel of a woman. So I believe it is wrong to say that you know, in this I'm sorry. This, uh, he is describing a woman's outer apparel. It's apparent that Peter here is making a strong divide in this case here between the spiritual and the material here. And we know because he's talking about the outward compared to the inward and what really should be grabbing the attention here. Paul has an agreeable passage in verse in First Timothy 4:8, when he says that bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profit. It, it profits unto all things. Yes, Peter is not saying that it's evil to wear apparel, but the woman should make sure that she puts her appearance into perspective, and in what is truly important: what is truly important? It's the inner man. It's Christ in us. That is what's going to last. That is the beauty overall that will be seen and cherished. Now, it's important to understand you know, that Peter, we know, is not given permission to let yourself go. But I believe truly, if we look, you know, the, the, the wife, What she truly desires is that love and attention and care for the husband. What is our job now? I'm going to go back now and lean on the husbands a little bit because I don't want to lean too much on the wives. What's our job, husbands? Loving our wives. I believe it's to give that confirmation that our wife is beautiful. Right? Not give her that sense of insecurity. I think it's our job, you know, when when a woman is putting so much emphasis in her outer beauty, especially as a wife, we have to uh, we have to we have to. It has to be an indication for us saying, "What are we doing? Are we, are we putting emphasis on her too much on her outer beauty as much more than what we see on the inside?" Now, I have two girls, I have two beautiful girls, and I'm bringing them up in the fear. I'm trying to bring up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, and I have to make sure. That with my girls, as they go into the world, that's going to be judging them on their outer appearance. That that's not what truly matters. That the beauty on the inside is what's going to last. And so it's important, husbands, that we acknowledge our wives' beauty. And as it changes, as as, as they go on, that We see the light that's in them, which is Christ. That we continue on and we encourage them. That we continue on and love them as Jesus loved the church. An unconditional love. And not give them a reason to be insecure. That's our job. That's our duty as husbands. And we we have a part to play in this as well. Yes, the outer adornment is great. Those times when your wife is ravishing and you're admiring her outer beauty. But don't fail to neglect what's inside. When she wakes up in the morning and she's hitting you, you with her bad breath. Love her anyway. Love her anyway, Right? She should look beautiful to you no matter what state she's in. And you should be constantly reminding her of that. Constantly losing my focus here with these notes. So why? Why the inner? Why why, why are we focusing so much on the inner? Why is that important? Well, it's of course it's the it's important, right? In Proverbs 12:4, it says that an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Just as just on a side note with that. When I, when I saw that, the crown of her husband. What does the crown symbolize? Victory. Glory. Right? The crown that Jesus wore—crown of thorns—makes you think, right? The victory that He had over sin, that we have in Him. So His His abasement, His shame, is our victory, and that should give us humility in that end. Why the inner man? Why? Why? Why are we focusing? What's what, What's with the attention? I, I I am I. I'm a lover of art. I, I enjoy a great painting. I see a painting and like I just get taken away by the art. My my daughters they they love to draw and I just love to look at them. yeah uh, the, the the art on book um, book covers. They just they they will bring me they will be the first thing that I notice usually Uh, oh this looks like a good book you know it's interesting that when you look at a painting like a Mona Lisa you know when you look at a Van Gogh painting Starry Night what don't you see? you don't see a very elaborate frame and why is that? Let's put the frame. You think maybe you know a piece of art like that deserves some kind of elaborate covering. But this whole idea of servitude that Peter's going into, it's talking about drawing attention to the right things. When you look at a painting, you don't want to be drawn to, to the, the frame. Same thing goes for you women, and I'll, I'm trying to exhort you as much as I can as a man. What craftsmanship is someone seeing when they see you? Are they seeing your own or are they seeing God's? What emphasis are you putting on yourself? Where is the attention being drawn? In the Old Testament, we read that when God gives instructions to build an altar, what does he say? Don't touch the stone.'t don't, don't make it pretty, don't mute it. Don't cut it. Some commentators will say, "Oh, this is Christ, the uncut stone. Perfect. Uh, I tend to think more. I, I tend to think that by cutting the stone, by shaving it to a certain molding and a certain beauty, it's drawing attention aside to the real thing. What truly matters. When you go to the Sistine Chapel, what do you see? Beautiful artwork. I've never been there. Many people that go there, though, they'll give me, they'll I get the same story. Oh, Michael, Michelangelo. I think Raphael has something to do with it as well. Beautiful artwork. The, 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 the ceilings are amazing. I, I rarely hear people when they leave saying, oh, I really got a message on discipleship. I, I, I really saw Christ in there. They're seeing man. They're seeing man's craft. It's important even with these temples right now as we talk about the outer adornment. And this goes for man too. <laughs> we can be just as vain, Right? Our society you know i remember being young you know collecting those muscle magazines saying i want to be like that i need that and if i get that way boy my life would be perfect the outer adornment the external the jar of clay being more than what it's supposed to be ignoring the treasure that's inside Interesting. Jesus, we read in Isaiah fifty-three. It says that there, there was no beauty or majesty, nothing that would attract others to him. There was nothing. There was nothing that was bringing the attention to others, saying, "Wow, that's that's the that's the Lord. That's that's the Messiah. Look how he is. Look his. Look at his. Go." golden locks and piercing blue eyes that we see in Hollywood today. I'm not trying to uh, down Hollywood here. But this got me thinking with the outer beauty and with the Lord. If Christ would walk past me, would I know Him? Would I know Him? Would I see? Would I be able to recognize? That's the Messiah. I I, th- I think that it's important for us to understand. And you know, with Holly, Hollywood movies, if we think that we can understand Christ through understanding understanding Jonathan Rumi, and if you guys don't know him, um, he is the uh, he is the Jesus in the, in the chosen. He plays a great character, awesome character, really getting the heart and mind of Jesus. Um, in many ways, whatever, however he can, I guess, you know, he's definitely touched the heartstrings on many people saying, wow, I, I love his role on Jesus. But if that's your view of Christ, I, I think there's a big danger there. There's, there's a huge danger there. And the reason why I'm saying this is because there is a false Christ, the false Messiah. It's interesting how we lean on beauty. I'm going I'm, I'm still staying on this subject out of outer apparel for a sec, just bear with me. That Satan, Satan was a beautiful, you know, he probably still is, beautiful angel. The Gem of all Gems, and we read in Ezekiel. His whole apparel was just glittering. He had everything to boast about, and he did. And look where it got him. An angel of light and his ministers and creatures of righteousness. How deceiving. If Christ were to walk past me, would I recognize him based on the knowledge that I have of him now? What knowledge do we have of Christ right now? Is it in books? Is it in movies? How did John the Baptist identify Christ when he saw him? There's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Did he see something? I think he did. But this wasn't an external sight, I truly believe. Not by looks behind how Jesus walked. He saw. He saw the Christ. The Spirit showed John because John was in tune with the Spirit. He wasn't focusing on the externals. John had discernment. Spiritual discernment. So... It wasn't a coincidence when Christ came to his own and his own knew him not. Why? Because Israel, by and large, had their own uh, uh, preconceived notion of Christ. They had their vision of the Messiah before he came. King of kings, taking them away from Roman rule. A powerful man same vision they had with Saul. Think about this. We can make the same comparison here with Saul and David. Saul being a king after man's own heart. Meanwhile, David being a king after God's own heart. And Samuel, when he was anointing David, had a hard time finding him to begin with. Why? Because he was going down the line. And he was looking for that type of person externally that fit that measure of king. And God said, listen... Stop looking at the outward, man. I don't see that. It's the inward. So wives, women, the beauty that truly resonates, it's not outward. It's the inward beauty. It's the heart. Having that heart for Christ, that is going to resonate. That is going to survive. That is going to last in eternity. One more thing, and I know I'm staying on this tangent here about Christ. I want to. One author says that Christ is the horizon of God. That is huge. Horizon, the outer scope, the, the beyond all limits. If we think about that we are now being a part of a kingdom that has no end, A kingdom that has no end. We can't imagine that. And Christ fulfilling that kingdom. Being everything, all inclusive. How in the world can we have our vision of Christ by a Hollywood or a Netflix movie in 30 minutes? The knowledge that we need of Christ to truly identify him is an experiential knowledge It's a knowledge that, and and, and this might sound a little off-putting, but it's more than a knowledge that can be provided in this book. Why do I say that? I'm not saying this to be blasphemous. Although John said that his application will erase that, so I have nothing to worry about that, John, thank you. You can't contain Christ in the book. Paul goes in Ephesians and said, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, despite the hardship and all of the struggle that Paul has gone through had gone through during that time in, in, in um uh, What's that? Uh, Philippians when he's writing this, one of his last letters. He's even calling on the idea of knowing him more. So there is a continuous learning of Christ. And I'm going to say that, I'm going to end this here. There's a difference between knowing knowing of Christ and knowing Christ. The knowing of is a secondary knowledge. As my my earthly father, many people knew of my father but they didn't know him like I knew him why because I had an experiential knowledge of Christ I mean I'm sorry my father I had an experiential knowledge of him that no one else had and we are called to the same for the same pursuit to have an experiential knowledge with Christ going through our hard times him being the resolution of the crisis that we are going through We read that all the time in Scripture. So, this is the building up of the inward man. This is the building up of Christ in us, the hope of glory, the mystery that that Paul talks about, this mystery. And this is the beauty, this now is the beauty that a woman should pursue, that Peter is talking about, this inward beauty that's going to now, not only be a testimony to others, but primarily be a testimony to her unbelieving spouse. Okay. Done with that. Verse 5 and 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah, an example here, obeyed Abraham calling him lord and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening here peter is describing the heart of submission by giving old testament examples and one is sarah and we know the story of sarah being submissive to abraham it is important that the heart of obedience is genuine and this is what needs to to be emphasized here. There's a difference when you're submissive and doing it begrudgingly or just paying a service and showing a facade and when there's that hard obedience truly resonating, this obedience that's genuine. Although I'm sure, being with Abraham's Sarah was not all for leaving her country for an unknown land that, in the end, they never they never really planted themselves in. But what do we see here? Sarah followed. Sarah did it obediently. That is not the drive by. Um, it should not be driven. Our, the 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 fact of submission should not be driven by fear either. And this is something that needs to be said because sometimes there are situations where there is fear going on, and that submission is done through fear. The wife is to be in submission to the husband as the husband is to be obedient to the wife. However, there is a certain trust that the woman must have, especially those unequally yoked. Like I said before, it's easy, or er, I should say, for a husband, for a wife to follow a husband that's following the Lord. And in, 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 in essence, she, she can rest easily knowing that her husband is being led by God. And that even though she might not necessarily agree with all decisions, she's trusting in the Lord. But even more so in this case, in this passage of Scripture, is Peter really emphasizing the idea that, especially with the wives, with an unequally yoked husband, that their true focus should be on the Lord because it needs to be. There is more of, a, I believe, a trust factor that needs to happen with a wife that is with an unbelieving husband. Because she doesn't know, she's not promised for a, a favorable return. At least a, a husband who's following the Lord. The spirit nudges the husband, which he does a lot when he's out of line, right? You're hoping, and I'm sure the wife is praying, Lord, give him a, a nice spiritual spanking for me. You know, I believe that the wife can pray that for the husband. You know, where the husband can pray, you know, Lord, help my wife, you know, and help her to see. <laughs> um, that's if uh, the husband is patient enough and not um, not putting his foot in his mouth,, you know? talking by experience, of course. But for the unbelieving spouse, this was, this was not, a, not, a, not a condition here. So even more so. Even more so did the uh, did the unbelieving wife, I'm sorry, the, unbe- the, the the wife with the unbelieving husband have to trust God in this case here. That I am being obedient to Him and I'm doing my part. And so, for those also husbands with spouses that are not necessarily following the Lord, there's a patience there. And we can definitely apply this. Like I said, everything here can be applied to the husband, in this case here. And when I say obedience, I have to really correct my word here. When I said the the wife being obedient, the husband being obedient to the wife, I should really say the love, to love the wife like Jesus loved the church, a sacrificial love. Um, So I had a back step there. I'm sorry. In this Whole thing. If we look back here, you know, talking about beauty, the importance our society has on beauty, and the emphasis that we think, you know, we need to be beautiful to succeed. Uh, I think a great story in the Old Testament is Leah and Rachel. and you know, I was when I was doing this study, I often just pondered on. Leah poor poor Leah um, talk about a, a woman who was kind of kicked to the curb for a while you know and you know she really when it comes down to her self esteem you know you, you read you read some of the, the text and you're thinking oh man Leah I really feel sorry for you I'm surprised he just didn't run away. That Jacob, after he was connived by by his um, father-in-law Laban, that she just didn't run because she wasn't she wasn't wanted. She wasn't wanted by Jacob. Jacob wanted Rachel, and we can infer from the text, even though we don't know what they look like, that Rachel was the most beautiful. But interestingly, God God had a different perspective, I believe, and I'll tell you two reasons why. First, we look at the childbearing. Who was more favorable? It was Leah. Leah produced the most children. Rachel had a very tough time to the point where she she lost her life after her last child, Benjamin. There was a struggle there. And that one of her children was definitely going to be in line for the Messiah. So, if we look at the message, the, the genealogy of, of, of Jesus, we see Leah. We don't see Rachel. Um, this is not a mock, a mock on Rachel. But this is God's economy here. This is God's vision. God favored, even though Jacob, at the, at the time, did not favor Leah. I believe God favored Leah. And in the end, we read something very interesting. Right? That when Jacob was giving them instructions to bury his bones, he didn't give them the instructions to bury them next to Rachel. He gave them instructions to bury them right with Leah, which makes me think here that in the end, I think Jacob knew that his, the chosen wife for him was Leah, despite the whole manipulation by his father-in-law. God chose Leah. God chose a quiet spirit, despite the persecution that she was going through in her own family and the rejection from her own husband. In the end, I believe her husband accepted her. All right. Last, Last portion of Scripture here. And we're going to hit the men now, just really quickly. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The shift here is to the man, although, like I said, we can go through this, men, we should not... Have a blind eye as we go from one to six, thinking, oh, my wife should read this and I just should just read seven. There's a lot of application there. And I'll let the Spirit give you that discernment in that regard. Peter here shifts to the man, although all of what we cover today can be applied to the man as well. Living with your wife in an understanding way. What does that mean? Okay, He's imploring the man. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Understanding in the Greek is gnosis, a knowledge, an experiential knowledge. I love how one pastor said, "What you should know, husbands, what makes your wife tick. Know your wife. What's she like, what's she don't like? What buttons do you not want to push? What buttons do you want to push? Know your wife. See the certain things that she gravitates towards, and these things change. I, you know, I'm married for my, with my wife for 14 years, and her likes, you know, have gravitated. I, I say they they evolved, they perfected. You know, I go, you know, in the beginning, she, you know, um, it was modeling homes to now crocheting to uh, uh, sewing. It cost me, of course, but it was a delightful cost. Uh. but it was a joy though because I find that because we're connected as husband and wife that my happiness relies on hers as well if she's not happy I'm not happy go figure All Right? there's not an independence there with the wife and the husband there's a connection and I think that's spiritual husbands when your wife is not happy you're not happy You won't be. See what makes them happy. I'm not saying that you give to their every whim. But what I'm saying here is this, that we need to have that understanding of our wife. And when we understand our wife, it really brings us closer to the Lord. And we'll see at the end that there is a... um, There's a result on our relationship with God. Understanding your wife. The woman in this passage here being the weaker vessel, you know, stereotypically okay. Strength-wise, yes, a husband is typically stronger. Is that always the case? No, we know that. Women these days can do amazing things that men... They can do things that men can do, and some of them do it even better. This is not here at a a point where Peter's being sexist here, but I believe here this is not just a physical strength, but this is an emotional strength. And stereotypical, I'm going to say here again, just to make sure that I'm covering all bounds. Emotionally speaking, the woman eternalizes things a lot differently. The Elvarengas can definitely give us a lesson on this. With their marriage classes, and and, you know, when when I have a fight with my wife, or I should say, um, intense fellowship, right? I can forget the conversation after ten minutes. A week later, my wife can bring the same conversation up and bring it back to my attention because what's going on there? Well. There's something going on emotionally, and I'm not going to be one to say I'm an expert on this. I don't know. I don't know. There's a connection. There's, you know, all these, you know, one person said it's like a spider web of, of things that are going on. Men, we tend to compartmentalize. We can put that aside and say, I'll, I'll take care of it later, or just say, forget about it. Women, there's a connectivity there. And this is God ordained here. And this is a reason because we are supposed to be balancing each other. I can't expect my wife to deal with things like I deal with. That's not the help me, I believe, that God had ordained. I loved how Ray mentioned help me, and I'll never forget this. That it's, it's really, you know, seeing the blind side, seeing the side that you can't see. The wife gives that perspective that the husband can't, and vice versa. We balance each other out. So when it comes down to emotions, I can't expect my wife, although at times I do, and I I I can't explain it, or, you know, it doesn't, these things don't come during a very convenient time. I have to respect it. But the weaker vessel, in this case here, could truly mean that they're they're not handling things as, as we men tend to handle things. And we have to be, going back to that word, understanding. We have to know our wives. Know your wife, know how she handles things. And why? Why, husbands? Why are we to do this? Well, unless you want to dwell on the rooftop. right? But no, this is something more. God says, your, your prayers are going to be hindered. Your relationship with your wife is also going to affect your relationship with me. And same thing with our brethren. You know, we, if we have, have ought with our brothers, you know, we have to reconcile that before we come to the altar. Lives, especially our first ministry. It's in the home. If our min- if our ministry at the home is suffering, our ministry outside is going to suffer. Reconcile that, or your prayers will be hindered by God. And God says that very clearly with Peter. Reconcile that, and then go to the Lord. In conclusion coming at it here we, we covered two chapters in Peter about service and servitude and I had me thinking further why Why service why, why servitude why in, a, in, a, in, in society as a whole and then bringing it down to the nucleus of a family why being a servant why being subject why being so called it seems weak I don't know it's, beyond, it's, it goes, it's contrary to, to our human instinct weakness is not good Emptying oneself is not necessarily good. Why? Well, if we think about it, God is the ultimate servant. He is the He is the servant. He served. In Isaiah 53, what do we read? The suffering servant. In the Old Testament, what do we see? As he is acknowledging every prophet and ordained man that God has used. Moses, my servant. And and Job, what do we read here? When Satan goes and appeals for Job, God says, have you considered my servant? It's being a servant. That's the key to the Christian life. And why? Why? Well... I believe this goes on beyond this life into the heavenly realm. We are going to serve in heaven and serve it delightfully. Why? Because we are going to be around servants. And how great it is to be around servants with, with that servile attitude all around you. It's so easy, right? Think about it. It's a delight to serve those who just want to serve. We're going to be fighting in heaven. Who's going to serve who? Right? Kind in a way, the perfect way. In heaven, we are going to serve. But this is the training ground right now. We are serving in an atmosphere where service is getting kicked back. It's getting a current against them. So God is training us to have a servant's heart. He is He is cultivating a servant's heart, and he has to do it in an environment where it is, it's torrents, it is, it's volatile, it goes against, I mean, this whole, whole month, we can see here, if we really want to think about it, you know, this whole pride month, this is not about serving others, it's about serving yourself, it's self-centeredness, it's going against, it's contrary to what the Lord is telling us Christians to go. So this life, although there's a current against, we are getting molded for serve for service, for a grander, more glorious life. And what better place to do it right here and right now, to be servants, despite despite the reaction we're getting. So we're told here, guys, we need to serve. We need to serve others despite them being deserved, be served. One last thing, and one more perspective that I want to hear. See if I can, I can find it here. Going back, I just want to think about you know, going back to the, the beauty and the outer apparel. If, if people were to look at you, what's the craftsmanship they're going to see here? Where are we spending our time? Crafting, molding, beautifying. Is it the outer man? Or is it Christ? Is it something that in, in time the superficiality will just fade away? Or is it something for an everlasting time? So let us let's ponder that and let's go on and consider that as we see our primary motivations. I, that's a convicting thing for me as well. Let's pray, Father. I thank you for this day. I thank you for well, this message. However, it's being received. I apologize for the flops, follies. It was as clean as I wanted it to be, but Lord, I, I gave it out. Lord, I'm asking you, Lord, to do your will. Whatever was said today, whatever heart received, Lord, we. You are the Master Potter. We are clay in Your hands. Mold us, Lord, to Your Son's image. Continue to do the work that You start in us, and help us, Lord, to see what, what, what truly matters. What is everlasting? Put our stock into that. I ask, Lord, for every husband and wife here, for those that are single, for those who are struggling in their marriage, for every man and woman who's raising kids, daughters, sons too in this world. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you give us a perspective. Give us the sight that you see. Give us an understanding of what truly matters. And Lord, give us a servant's heart as we go on this week to serve you, not to serve man. And to continue on in the faith. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This time and, uh, and in needs prayer, I'm glad to pray for you. Amen.